Okay, I'm glad you're here. I want to, um, I want to, we're, we're up to Parshas Lech Lecha, and uh, there's an amazing, there's an amazing pattern uh, that the Torah opens with, which is, we have Breshis, which is um, uh, describing the whole creation of the world, followed by Parshas Noach, which is the great flood, which is where after Hashem creates the world, He, he wipes it out. That in itself is incredible, that one follows on the heels of the other. And then we have Parshas Lechacha, where God recreates the world all over again, in the form of Avraham Avinu. So Abraham, our forefathers. So that's, so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a radical reinvention but it's on a much smaller scale. Now God is starting with an individual, and this is going to be the birth of the Jewish people. Um, so again, let's now just say what we just said over one more time, but in the context of the calendar. Because it's especially meaningful that this whole um, kind of like uh, uh, diving into the account of the recreation of the world and the, and the earliest history of the foundations of existence are happening right after Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, Shmini Atzeres, Simchas Torah, finishing the Torah, beginning it anew, because at that point we're really, God is re, literally recreating the entire world. And we are doing the same with ourselves in terms of the levels of introspection and joy and prayer and all the rest that we're going through. So, so on every single level, on the macro level, on the micro level, you have the entire universe being recreated. We're doing it the same with our own individual selves. And then at the end of that process, we re-explore, re-learn the account of the formal creation of the universe. So, so it's very monumental, the whole, the whole juxtaposition and the whole timing. And again, the whole nature of, of, uh, of God's process, creating the world and then destroying it and then creating it again, really in the form of Abraham Avinu, or a new beginning, if you want to phrase it that way. And, um, and you know something, w- one of the things that's... Um, in, in, in a way, it's the most, it's one of the most counterintuitive things in the world. And yet, if you think about it, there's a certain logic to it at the same time. And it certainly goes against the today's zeitgeist, which is all kind of revolves around this, what I like to call this cult of celebrity that's been, um, that's been built up in the media, making all these marginal personalities into, into, you know, revered figures, you know, for a number of minutes. <laughs> it's, um, it is really quite, quite, quite astonishing what, what's going on. Um, you know, maybe on a deeper level you can say the following. This is just popping into my head now. Which is that we, the world needs heroes. And we're supposed to be those heroes. And if we're not going to be those heroes... Then, then the guy who loses, you know, 20 pounds in a week will be that hero. Mm-hmm. You know, which, by the way, that's an accomplishment. But, but there are people who have accomplished even less than that, who are, become national figures for a short period of time. But maybe, you know, it says in Pirkei Avos that 
where there's no man, meaning no leader, where there's no leader, be a leader. Step up. If you look around and there's no leadership, go, be, be the guy, you know? There was a beautiful thing yesterday. There were, we were at a, um, a bris yesterday, and um, they had a, a, a Sefer Torah there, and they, we were going to daven mincha there and, and, and read from this Sefer Torah, which, by the way, was the first time it was ever read out of, which was really amazing. And uh, my wife pointed out, here's a new baby, and a, a Sefer Torah is like a baby, and so you have a new baby and a new Torah, so that, that in itself was beautiful. And it happened to be that it was my eldest son's bar mitzvah parsha. Mm-hmm. So he knows it. And he said to me, you know, he said, you know, I, I, I can read it. I can, I can go up there. And, and I, he said, should I? Can I? And I said, I, I imagine that they had someone who's going to read and who probably already agreed to read. But I said, you know, because they were taking it out at that moment. I mean, it was like the time to read it was literally, you know, 30 seconds away. I said, well, go up and ask if they need someone to read it. And sure enough, they did. And he read it, you know. And, you know, so it was exciting. It was actually exciting to, to see that happen. Um, so, so what I'm getting at here, what I'm getting at here is that if you look at the Torah, you see time and time again that the most epic, that the most epic changes in world history emanate from individuals. And they emanate from individuals in usually family situations, um, brothers dealing with each other, husband and wives dealing with each other, friends dealing with each other, and yet the, they reverberate on a, on a, literally on a cosmic scale. So I'm, I'm sure you, you can think of many examples yourself, but Adam and Eve, Adam and Chava, husband and wife, kind of just trying to get it together, you know? I mean, you know, one of the, one of the, Amazing things about that, that, that account, and you might be familiar with it, but maybe not, it's worth mentioning, is that Hashem said to Adam, and by the way, this is before Chava was even created. Chava had not been created yet, okay? Hashem had not put Adam asleep yet and created Chava. So Hashem says to Adam, don't eat from the tree of knowledge. So in other words, it's just interesting to just, to, just to note, just for your own education, that Chava did not hear God give those instructions directly. In fact, she hadn't even been created yet. But, interestingly, one of the ways that we learn it out is because all souls, we say, emanated from Adam, right? She was a part of his soul, so on some level she did hear. Okay, so that's, that, that's one explanation. But anyway, nonetheless, nonetheless, she, Adam literally tells her. So that's the formal hearing. You know, we don't have to say that she heard it because she was part of it. We don't have to get so mystical. She got the instructions from Adam. But Adam added something. This is the, this is the, key, this is the key point. Is that Hashem said to Adam, don't eat from the tree. And then if you look at what Adam tells Chava, what Adam tells Eve, he, he tells her, don't eat or touch the tree. Now, now that is a very interesting thing. And that turns out, that's sort of like a good thing, and it's sort of like a bad thing. And I'll, well, I'll get into this, because this has a lot to do with a lot of the, what we call dirabunans, uh, the fences that the rabbis have made around the Torah. And a lot of people don't really understand what they are, and they think that the rabbis are just trying to make us mishugana, 
You know, it's sort of like the Torah says X and the rabbis add Y and Z and A and B and C and what's going on and how authoritative is that and how am I supposed to understand the whole thing? So maybe we'll get into that a little bit because that, that, uh, that tends to sort of confound and perplex people. So maybe we'll just, this is kind of the source of it, by the way, because here you see the very first Dirabanan, right? Adam, which is a, 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 an extra fence added by the rabbis. So, why do we add fences? Why do we, why do we add fences? And how authoritative are the fences that we add? Well, first of all, they're 100% authoritative because one of the mitzvahs in the Torah is to listen to the rabbis. So, so, so if you, I'm going to give this to you in technical jargon. I'll explain it in a moment. Every derabanan is a deraisa. You, you, can't make, you can't say, ah, oh, that's just a derabanan. You can't just say that's from the rabbis only, and therefore it doesn't have the same level of authority. Because if the Torah tells you to listen to the rabbis, then everything the rabbis say has that level of authority as though the Torah itself said it. Okay? However, in times of emergency and when things get complicated and everything like this, this already you have to learn halacha in a serious way to understand that sometimes those derabundance are a little bit more flexible. And there are many occasions where, where, where they are. Um, especially in a time of what we call a hefsid maruba or, or things like this, a, t- a time of financial loss, you have to consult a rabbi and tell them what the situations are. But there is a, a greater degree of flexibility, but not a greater degree of author- authoritativeness. You see, and there's no contradiction between the two of them. They can be way more flexible, but still the, the initial enactment has, has authority. Okay. So, but, but we're going to see how this goes horribly wrong in a moment. <laughs> which, is that, which is that God says to Adam, don't eat from the tree. Adam informs Chava, don't eat or touch the tree. Now, why did Adam say that? Well, you can, you can, we can talk on and on and on and on about that. And ultimately, it's speculation. And we don't know because we weren't there. And it's not recorded. So we don't know. So, but, but it would seem to be on the purest level and on the simplest level that Adam was trying to help Chava. He was trying to help her and he was trying to put a fence around the prohibition so that she wouldn't transgress the prohibition. In other words, how is she going to eat from the tree if she's not allowed to touch the tree? So Adam was, was, was trying to help her, Right? Where did this go wrong, though? He did not educate her that it was a fence that he was putting up. And you're going to see how the snake takes advantage of this in one moment. He did not educate her. He did not tell her, God said, don't eat from the tree. Our practice will be to ensure that we are able to achieve that, not even to touch the tree. He didn't say that. So now look how it goes wrong. The snake then comes up to Chava and says, you know, look at that nice fruit. If you eat that fruit, you're going to be just like God. And then she says back, but I'm not supposed to eat or touch the tree. Otherwise, I'm going to die. And then the snake pushes her into the tree. She touches the tree. And then he says, the snake says, did you die? And she says, I didn't die. Now, she didn't realize that that, that that wasn't all one statement from God, but that Adam had added that extra level, and he didn't inform her that he had added that level. 
So now she was in a state of great confusion. Now it seems like none of it's true. I got pushed into it, I touched it, I didn't die. Well, if that part's not true, maybe the eating part isn't true either. And then, of course, this, this uh, event is, is, is far more complex and, and it's touching on, you know, with the oneness of God and, and all sorts of things. I mean, it's a very, very deep subject. But I'm, I'm just trying to get into this, this particular point right here. So it all, it all becomes undone. It all becomes undone. So it's very important. I know when I started, uh, you know, taking on mitzvahs and everything like that, it's, it was very important for me to know what's a minag, what's a custom, what's a derabanan, what's a deraisa, you know. And, and not everyone tells you because either they themselves don't know or they just figure, look, just go ahead and do everything and whatever it is. And so it becomes very confusing and confounding and can even cause some real resentment, by the way. If you feel as though you're not being given the proper tools to advance, because, you know, especially since the psychology of someone who's trying to take on more is this very black and white, often, uh, approach where it's sort of like, I'm either doing it or I'm not doing it. And if I'm trying to do it and I can't do it, then I'm not doing it at all. And you should know that one of the great um, tools of the Yetzirah, of the snake, so to speak, is that they get a person from the standpoint of integrity to do the wrong thing. From the standpoint of integrity, they get you to do the exact wrong thing. And I'll explain to you the process right now, because this is, this is rampant. This is rampant, and you'll see it in many, many people. And if you're aware of this, you're one step ahead of the game, which is the following. Why does a person want to take on Torah observance at all. Why would a person want to do it at all? And, you know, probably people have different reasons. I'll give you one approach anyway. Um, A person wants to, they want to do the truth. I was created for a certain reason. This world exists for a certain reason. God wants a certain thing from me. I'm in this world. I I want to do what God wants me to do. (laughs) It's as simple as that. I mean, Why else am I here? Why else am I here? Why else is the world here? I want to do the truth. Right? Okay. So, that, 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 like I say, other people might have other reasons, but that at least encompasses a a large slice of the pie of people. You know? They want to do the truth. Okay. So, that means that being truthful while pursuing the truth becomes a great priority. Okay. Now, what happens is someone comes up to them and, and, and teaches them, or they learn on their own, or whatever it is, they learn about a certain thing, a certain mitzvah. And for whatever reason, they're not at the stage in their life where they can do it. And then they say, well, listen, if I can't, if I can't do this, then I'm being a hypocrite. And I don't want to be a hypocrite. So, I can't, I can't be a hypocrite. And so, and so, and so from the standpoint of them wanting to, from the standpoint, in other words, a lot of times, it's sort of like, well, do these five things. Well, I can't, I can't do all five things. Therefore, if I can't do all five things, if I can only do one or two of the things, 
then I'm being a hypocrite by not doing all of it. So, so therefore, I can't do any of it because I don't want to be a hypocrite. See, the, the, the logic becomes very, very twisted. But they can do those two things still. And that's what they're capable of doing. And if that's all they're capable of doing, that's all that's being asked of them at that moment. And yet, the irony is, and this is where the, the snake comes in, the irony is, is that the snake will come and get a person not to do the two things that they can do because they don't want to be a hypocrite. They don't want to be untruthful. But there's no lack of truth there. It's just that's all they can do at that moment. So let me put it in another way that might be a little easier to grasp. Imagine there are five medicines that a person is supposed to take for whatever is there, there is ailing them. Five medicines. And let's say they're independent medicines. Let's say they can only afford two of them for whatever reason. So are they being a hypocrite to only take two of the medicines? If I can't take all five medicines, I'm a liar. So I won't even take the two medicines that I can take. That makes no sense, right? Imagine you walk out onto the street. You see a, a man who's lying out on the sidewalk. Unfortunately, we've all seen something like this. He's lying out on the sidewalk. He's hungry. He's destitute. He's in rags and everything like that. You say, a guy like that, it's, hard, it's breaking my heart. A guy like that, uh, you know what he deserves? Uh, when's the last time he had a steak dinner? He deserves a steak dinner. But you know what? I only have $3 in my pocket. You can't buy a steak dinner for $3, so you walk by him and you give him nothing. Right? Does that make sense? I mean, it's true. I mean, if you could give him a steak dinner, that would probably be, you know, a tremendous thing. But you think for $3 you can't buy like a, a banana and some fruit and a, some juice and a candy bar or something like that? I mean, that could save his life. So the irony is, is that we have this relationship so often with our own souls where our soul is that man lying out on the street. <laughs> and we say, you know, really, I would love to give you, you know, you know, Rabbeinu Tom to fill him. <laughs> and, you know, like a talus with like the silver, you know, you know, wrapped around it and all the rest. And I'd love to give you this, that and the other thing. But I can't, but I can't do it. So you get nothing. You get nothing. And our soul is going, hey, wait a second, can you, can you please reconsider that? You know, so we've got to do whatever we can do. We've got to do whatever we can do. And if it's not, you know, it's funny, I'm about to, there's someone who I've been talking to who's going through, you know, he's going through a lot of stuff and he's kind of a little bit at war with himself and he, he, he really wants to take on more things, but he's kind of, you know, struggling. He's struggling. And, you know, one of the things that I'm going to tell him is pick one non-kosher food you're eating and don't eat that. In other words, not, not become kosher entirely. If, for instance, and I, I don't know the details, for all I know, he's not eating non-kosher food. But in case he is, let's say he's eating pork and shrimp and so, or, and clams. Cut out the clams. Cut that out. You know, and that, that's a real thing. That is a real thing. You know, and so maybe they'll still be in a restaurant that's not kosher, and maybe there we, oh, the special today is, you know, fried clams or something like that. Oh, no, okay, I'll have the shrimp. 
But there will be that moment where, you know, and, and, and at that moment, at that moment, he was absolutely keeping kosher. When he, when he didn't order the clams, at that moment, he was absolutely keeping kosher. You know, I'll tell you something. I once saw something that broke my heart so much. I was in New York, actually, and I was, it was a Sunday morning. I went to a minion, and there was a small minion. There were maybe a few more than ten guys there uh, in a little office space. And um, there's one guy who shows up, and it was like 8 a.m. on a Sunday morning. So no one's just wandering into this building at 8 a.m. on a Sunday morning, you know? And if they're there, they're there on purpose because they want to be there. And he's sitting in the back, and he's not, you know, we're all putting on our talus and tefillin and everything like that, and he's kind of just sitting, not, not doing anything, right? But he, but he came, which is an amazing thing. So someone comes up to him after the davening and says, you know, do you want to put on tefillin? And he said, he said, how can I? He said, last night, these hands ate lobster. How can I put tefillin on, on, on? And I was like, what does one thing have to do with the other? <laughs> okay, you ate lobster yesterday. You can't put on tefillin today? Is there a contradiction here? If there is, I don't hear it. I don't hear it. You know, but again, this is, this is the Yet Sahara saying, if I'm not a man of truth, in all things, then I'm out of the game. Then I'm out of the game. It's not true. It's not true. One thing doesn't have anything to do with the other. You do what you can. That's what it is. And, um, and hopefully, when a person does what they can, they build up, you know, muscles, so to speak, in their soul, and that allows them to do more. You know, one thing that I'm trying to advocate, because I think it's just an interesting idea, I've heard it said a lot of times one way, but I, I've added a tiny twist to it, which is, a lot of times you'll be at gatherings, maybe they're praying for someone's, uh, that someone should get better, or, you know, maybe there's a time of crisis, or maybe it's one of the, you know, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, and, and there's an announcement that's made. Everyone should have, should have in mind to take on one thing. Think of one thing that you can take on and take it on, Right? And I think that that's a beautiful thing. But what I want to add is, take on one thing that you're going to do and one thing that you're going to stop doing. Because the truth is, is that the entire Torah is really organized in what we call ases and lotases, positive commandments and negative prohibitions. And that that's the true microcosm of the Torah. And what we say is, sur do good, and with, with, with re- refrain from doing bad. And that both of them are twin. They're both, they're sort of like, uh, sometimes we talk about the two wings of the dove. Both of these things have to be in balance. The ability to act and the ability to withdraw and not to act. And they're both two elements of our humanity. By the way, I heard in the name of the Ari that that faculty was damaged in the, in the Garden of Eden. When to know to do and when to know to refrain. And if you think about it, that kind of is the essence of the human condition, which is when to do and when not to do. That's often like, you know, I I tell you, I I heard this expressed in a different way. It's kind of a different idea, but it overlaps, which is, I heard Reb Shlomo say that one of the 
one of the things a person needs a Rebbe for, like a, you know, like a holy master for, is to know when to serve God in secret and when to serve God publicly. Because sometimes the greatest thing you can do is in front of a group of people, stand up and make an announcement, I am donating $100,000 or $1,000 or $100, whatever it is, to stand up and publicly say, I am donating this money for the shul or for this cause. And it's absolutely, believe me, this is in the Gomorrah already. It inspires other people to give. And if you have your name on the building and that inspires other wealthy people to give, that's all 100% kosher and, and admirable even. But sometimes the greatest thing in the world is to whisper, here's a, a contribution, or even to give it in a way where the person doesn't even know where it came from, and everything like that. So sometimes to give in secret, sometimes to serve Hashem publicly, and that you need a Rebbe for. When to do which, you know? By the way, even in instances, this is just a PS on that. I heard this from Rabbi Krohn, and I, I thought that this was important. Because there are a lot of um, derechs in, like, paths of serving God, especially in Hasidus, especially like, you know, like in Kutsk, things like that, those type of schools which really emphasize serving Hashem in secret, and that no one should know what you're doing. Basically, basically, it's just no one should know. But I heard Rabbi Pesach Kron say something very strong, which was that, you know, even if you're going to do that, you know, even in the category where you're serving Hashem in secret, tell your children what you're doing. Because it's very important that they know. Even this, the, the category of secret mitzvahs, they should know about because they should not find out about that stuff after 120 at a person's funeral, if they even hear it there. Because that's, a sen- that's an essential aspect of their chinook, of their education. You know? And it also goes for people who have um, students at all. That would also fall into that category. You know? So that's... And, and um, you know, and then you can, you can kind of pick and choose within that. But, but that's, that's kind of... The, the, the general principles, anyway. So, so let's keep on going. What, what, what started us off on this whole uh, kick about Adam and Chava and, and, and truth and the snake and all the rest was just a, an affirmation that the biggest changes that are made and the most impactful events that are made, and I, 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 I preface this by saying that this was a little bit counterintuitive, especially given the culture of our age, which is the whole cult of celebrity thing, right? Is that the greatest changes are not made from the, you know, from the bully pulpit of the cover of InStyle magazine, right? But they're made individually, and often without anyone around, by the way. You know, that, that we, we think that that public platform, that reality series, that whatever it is, that stadium full of people, is that is the ticket to, 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 to making an impact. If you really want to make an impact. And yet, you know, it's, the Torah says really otherwise. It, it, it records event after event, which is really among individuals and family members and friends, where the world is substantially impacted. Substantially. In fact, I'll give you the best example that I can give of this. Other than Adam and Eve, I mean, I'm going to give you the opposite example now, okay? Here's the opposite example. 
for the good. Here's the happy version of that, okay? Which is that when Yosef had Sadik, right? Joseph, he saves the entire world. Through him, the salvation of the entire world comes. How? Because there's a famine that's so severe that literally the entire world is starving to death. Literally. The world is literally starving to death. Okay? And Hashem gives him this dream, which is on the level of a prophecy, and he comes up with this plan, and, and Hashem, you know, you all know the story, Hashem takes him out of prison where he's been for, I always forget the exact number, something like 12 years, has been in a... He's in the lowest country in the world, in the lowest place in the lowest country. This prison. I mean, it's, it's remarkable. This, this prince. I mean, the, the tzaddik, right? The prince of the world, really, is in this low dungeon for like a decade or more. And somehow he emerges. We're going to get to that in a moment. He emerges and, and he gets an audience with the Pharaoh, who's secularly speaking, the king of the world. And Pharaoh makes him his number two, and he puts this plan into effect where they storehouse all this extra grain that's coming into the world. And through that, it's rationed, and people live, and, 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 and literally the world is saved. Okay, so how did that happen? How does the world get saved? And the Torah records it. You can look it up. It's an, uh, it's an amazing, amazing thing. So, Yosef had been made the warden because wherever he went within his little individual setting, his greatness was always immediately recognized and, and whoever was running the show said, what am I running the show for? Let him run the show and I'll, you know, I'll read the newspaper. You know, this guy is better than I am and I'll make him my number two. Okay, so that happened in prison. And Yosef is essentially, you know, running the prison. And one day he walks by and he sees someone with a sad, one of the prisoners with a sad expression on his face. Now, you would think if you're in prison in ancient times in, in, in Egypt, that's all you're going to have is a sad expression on your face. There's nothing, nothing too remarkable about that, right? But, but this is getting into just how sensitive and how great Yosef was. Because he noticed that this particular prisoner had an unusually sad face. Right? So now that's already, wow. Wow. Okay? And he went up and he said to him, you know, what's the matter? Are you okay? And the prisoner opens up his heart and he tells him about this dream that he had and how his partner also had a dream and Yosef interprets them. And then later on, a couple of years later, when Paro has his dream, these people recommend Yosef after Paro is not able to get a, 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 an interpretation that he's satisfied about. He's able to, they recommend Yosef. And then the rest of the story that I just mentioned kicks in. So in other words, why, how did, how did the whole thing happen? Because Yosef recognized that another person was sad and asked him how he's doing. Do you hear? And from that question, from that level of sensitivity, literally the world was saved from starvation. That was the point that it emanated from. Again, global consequences. 
global consequences based on an interaction between two people. So, so is it a small thing to walk up to someone and give them a dollar on the street? And by the way, if you give a dollar to someone on the street or a quarter or whatever you can afford, you have to say encouraging words also when you do it. Just something like, even if it's as simple as have a good day, even if it's as simple as that, because the rabbis say that words that accompany tzedakah radically transforms the mitzvah. You know, just to kind of hand it to someone and hightail it, it's still good, it's still holy, but it's way more holy, just if you accompany it with some words. Okay? So, even if it's just a, just a short word of encouragement. Okay. So now, now basically, the reason why I, I've, I've gone through all this to, to show you the, the importance of individual um, contributions is because I want to revisit this pattern that's at the opening of the Torah. Again, we've just gone through the high holidays. Rosh Hashanah, Hashem has recreated the world. Yom Kippur, we're getting our act together. Sukkot, we're celebrating it, the whole thing, and doing now, we say that there's uh, two levels of tshuva. There's, that's return to God. There's tshuva me'ira, tshuva from the sense of awe, from fear. That's like Yom Kippur. Then we have tshuva me'ava, Tshuva, return to God, that's coming from the place of love. That's Sukkot. Okay? So, so we have both aspects of, of, of Tshuva, of return, and then it all culminates with the finishing of the Torah, and then we begin the Torah again with the account of the creation of the world. So, I mean, it's a seamless fit. It's an amazing, amazing flow. And then, Parshas Noah, the world is destroyed. Alright? And we were talking about it a bit yesterday, which is, which is that after the high holidays, we go back into the world and it's like we're, the flood starts. But what's the flood? The flood is all the things we have to do and all the things that we have to catch on up to and all of our problems rush back to us like a, like a flood, right? And then comes, and we're going to explore that in a moment, and then comes Lech Lecha, Abraham. God starts the world over again with an individual. With an individual. Right after two global, major, catastrophic, or the creation of the world is not catastrophic, but two major productions. Right? All of a sudden the individual comes. And it's the individual that's carried us till today. Right? And a community which is composed of individuals. That creation, that level of creation took hold. You know, when Hashem, I'm now I'm blanking whether it was Moshe or Abraham, I think it was Abraham, when, 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 when Hashem chose, chose, chose the Jewish people, in both instances it was the Jewish people, Hashem wanted a guarantee. What's the guarantee that this is a good choice that I'm making? And they, it was either, I think it was Abraham, maybe it was Moshe, I think it was Abraham, said, I, I'm, I guarantee you my children. Again, that, that parent-to-child individual relationship, that teacher-to-student, that friend-to-friend individual relationship, 
That's, that, that was the guarantee that, that God liked the most. You know? God said, okay, that's, that's going to be your thing. Your thing is to give over the, the revelation of the oneness of God. That's going to be your thing? Okay, then, then, then you're my man and, and, and you're my people. That's, that, that, that's it, you know? So, so, society just increasingly wants to blot out the individual or to empower the individual and to tell them that they're the true God. There's this weird, it's like, it's like, a, it's like a steering wheel. Can you imagine you get behind the car, the, the, in a car and it's a steering wheel, but it only goes all the way one way or all the way the other way? How can you get anywhere like that? But that's what society does. And this is also, the, this is the Yetzirah. It either tells you you're an individual and you're not, you're not a celebrity and therefore you can't do anything in this world. Why are you even trying? It's ridiculous. It's just making you worthless. Or it's telling you, it swings to the other way that says, there's no such thing as God. And what are you doing? And you're God. And, you know, you know you're the one. You know, it's all you. So it's like, ah. how about God made me and I have something to do, but I also make mistakes and God forgives and I'm going to do my best and Mashiach is coming and hooray. <laughs> you know? That, how about that path? Because that's that's that is our path, and that is the reality. But we're getting you know assaulted from from various angles, you know. So, on that subject, let me let me just start to wrap it up and just do one more piece with you, which is that so so the floodwaters come in. And I heard in the name of the, Lub- the Lubavitcher Rebbe that, you know, that this is how he understands the, the flood. Obviously, the, the flood was an actual event also, but on a, on a deeper level, these are, the, these are the, the, the forces that come in, especially after the holiday season, you know, and just assault us and try to overwhelm us and, and drown us, actually. Um, so what's the defense? How do, we, how do we survive that going into the year? How do we survive that? And so I'd like to suggest that, that, that we make an ark, right? And um, an ark is a structure. And I was thinking that, you know, in, in the Torah, there are really two structures that are, that are spelled out. Uh, their dimensions are spelled out in great detail. Two structures. One is the ark that Noah, Noah built. And the other is the Mishkan, the tabernacle, uh, which was the prototype of the Beis HaMikdash, the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. And so we need a structure around us. If we're going to be successful, and we're going to make it through, through, through the year, through the floodwaters, if we're going to make it, we need a structure. And interestingly, both of those structures... Are, are on a very deep level imaginings of the human being in an idealized state. The ark, it says, took Noah 120 years to build. And we talk about 120 years as the ideal lifetime of a person. You know, um, depending on the circles you travel in, it's, 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 uh, in certain circles, 
people bless you ad mea ve'esrim, which means until 120. And um, I know that Rabbi Shlomo used to say, you know, at the end of 120, meaning at the end of one's lifetime, right? It's, it's a blessing. It's a blessing. So 120 really represents a, the fullness of a person's life. And that's, that's the ark, because the ark took 120 years to build. The Mishkan, the tabernacle, is also likened to a person. And there are many, many references to this and detailed descriptions how the structure, how the blueprint of the Mishkan parallels the construction of a human being. So both the human being and the ark, rather both the Mishkan, the tabernacle, and the ark represent the human being. But in their idealized state, where there's a structure and a pattern and a plan for how to proceed. Both of them are mobile. Right? The ark was designed to go places. Right? And the tabernacle was also meant to be broken down and to travel from place to place. They're both ambulatory. They both are meant to go places. Now, let's get a little bit deeper. Because there is an essential difference between the two structures. The ark... After the animals and, and Noah and his family were let in, was meant to keep things out. Whereas the tabernacle, like I say, is the prototype of the holy temple, and that the prophet says, "My house is a house for all people." It wasn't just the Jews who brought offerings to the holy temple. All the nations of the world brought and are able to bring and will bring in the future with the establishment of the third holy temple. Everyone will bring. So the tabernacle is not meant to keep things out, but is a structure that welcomes and brings people in. So now the question is, what should I be? If I have to make myself into something, which one should I be? So I think that one's first, if they're going to approach this from a spiritual place, one's First instinct, I know my first instinct was, well, I'll be like a tabernacle. Right? That which welcomes and brings everything in. But then I thought about it a little bit more and I thought, no, you know something? The answer is both. You have to be a tabernacle and you have to be an ark. You have to know when to bring things in, when to say yes, when to go out of your way, and when to say no, and when to close the door, and when to shut something out. You need both. You need both. And you need that balance. And that's very important. I'm going to tell you a teaching which I never heard before or since. From, I heard this from Reb Shlomo with my own ears. Okay? So I'm sure it's a medrash. And it goes like this. Avraham of Yinus tent, that's his home, was open on all four sides. You know, which is beautiful, which means that wherever someone was approaching, from whatever angle, they felt, they saw that the door was open, and on an extra level, you can even say they felt like they were walking through the front door. You know, whatever angle they approached from. Awesome, awesome. Now, that's, that teaching is known, but I don't know if this teaching is known. Heard it from Reb Shlomo. He said, Yitzchak, the, there was one door. And it was closed. And there was a guard at the door. And if someone knocked on the door, you know what the guard would say? Yes. 
Can I help you? Not so simple. Not so simple. Not so simple. And that's Yitzchak. Okay, now Yitzchak is Gvura, right? That's Din, that's judgment, that's structure. Avram is Chesed, kindness, understood, but no one's speaking against Din. No. Balance. And then Yaakov, who's Yaakov? He's the synthesis of the two. Right? So, so this, this is also something. This is the level of the arc, so to speak, that we're talking about. Knowing when to say yes. Remember we were saying, Sur ra tov, Do good and withdraw from bad. To know when to say yes and when to say no. To take on something positive and also to refrain from something, even if it's a small thing. Even if a person isn't keeping kosher, but okay, so sausage and that hand. Right? Just to, to, to begin with, at least to know within some area of their life. And, um, and Hashem should bless us that going forward into this year, that we should have, that we should have the tools. And I'll just end with one, uh, maybe one last note, which is, um, and we should be careful not to take everything so personally. You know, a lot of times I think we just take things really personally. And I'm really talking on some level with our relationship with God. You know, I, I remember I, I just yesterday I was telling a story, a, a, a wonderful thing that had happened in my life. And someone wanted asked to hear about it. They had heard the story a, a while ago. And it's a fun story. It's about the naming of my, my daughter and how couldn't come up with the name and then I came up with the name and right before I named it they read from the Torah that name and I wasn't sure about the name and so to to have heard it from the Torah right as I was about to name her that thing was incredible to me it was incredible to me and it was such a reassurance you know and then the person said yeah God just wanted to make you work and I thought, yeah, I, I actually liked it. You're making a face, but I liked it. I, 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 didn't, I didn't mind it. I was like, yeah, you know, and, and that's okay, too. Sometimes God wants to make us work for something. That's okay, too. Not because he is trying to get us or undermine us or he's after us, wants to zap us, something like that. Sometimes what's called for in terms of the fixing of the world is also some rolling up the sleeves, some hard work. And it doesn't mean that God is withholding from us. But sometimes what's required is an extra bit of effort. And it's not a personal thing. It's just sort of like, okay, you know, got to do this. And, and that's just part of our job. That's just part of our job. And that's okay. That's okay. But sometimes we take it personally and it's like, oh, God's like trying to wipe me out. <laughs> it's like, oh, no, why are you doing this? And it, we don't have to take it so personally, you know? It's like, just like, just imagine that's just another thing in the inbox. And Scott, you know, the inbox is not you. <laughs> the inbox is the inbox. <laughs> and so, anyway, should all be blessed with a beautiful, sweet year. And looking forward to learning about all the, uh, our Holy Fathers and Mothers together in the coming weeks. 
and uh, good things. Yeah.